You're listening to a podcast from the Media Motel. Coming up this week in episode 459, oh no, is that the sound of panpipes, androgyny and pop through the ages, and how musicians are coping without touring. That's all coming up after Wonder Stuff and a wish away. My favourite bands from the 80s and 90s, an armoury of succinct, breezy pop tunes. This is from their first album, The Eight-Legged Groove Machine. As a single, this track made it to number 43 in the UK from July 1988, The Wonder Stuff and A Wish Away. Well, I enjoyed that very much. And actually, I always giggle when I think of the Wonder Stuff because I went to a festival. It was called Witchwood um, down in Cheltenham on Cheltenham Racecourse. And this would have been, I think, 2009 that I went with, with some people I was living with at the time and our friends. Um, and the, the friends that, that, that were sort of a gang of us, there was a chap called Phil who I still was still sort of linked on Facebook. He was a very nice man. And I remember us laughing because he said, oh, you're going to come and see the Wonder Stuff we're playing. He said, oh, you're going to come and see the Wonder Stuff. And I was very dismissive. I said, oh, for goodness sake the wonder stuff had their day years ago i mean you know for crying out loud what do you mean they're still playing their two songs that they had hits with and that sort of thing and i saw them and when we all met up later on this chap said to me don't think i didn't see you dancing near the front mm. at the wonder stuff i thought they were excellent i really enjoyed them i know that that miles and erica kind of do sort of acoustic type things now yeah. but the thing that made me laugh was that miles then said about halfway through i think it was before size of a cow he said 
said, according to the BBC, we've only ever done two songs. This is one of them, and did Signs of a Cat, and they did Dizzy at the end. Dizzy, but yeah. Um, yeah, but I I thought they were great. I I I afterwards I admitted my kind of mistake because they were a very good live band and very fun and perfect for an afternoon slot at a festival. Of course, there's an absolute string of minor hits, some big mm-hmm. ones, but you know, the, the, one of those bands that for a, a period, you know, maybe five or so years um everything made the charts albeit you know sometimes number 37 num- sometimes number 49 or something but the, you know they were always there or thereabouts uh, and, uh, for a good period of time in the, in the enemy i think as well they were they mm. were very much that kind of one of the big bands of that era i think it's but yeah like you say they 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 did they did quite well in in terms of minor hits but they only had a couple of big things yeah. that really kind of broke through well, that's what Elvis Costello always says as well. When he dies, um, Radio 2 will play Oliver's Army and watching <laughs> the detectives back to yeah. back. And then that's it. Then they'll move on to the traffic and the news. Maybe pump it up as well. I think lots of people know that. But yeah, it's, it's you know, the Oliver, RIP, the Oliver's Army hit maker. Hitmaker, yeah. Stuff. Seem it's it's yeah I do feel sorry for bands when they get kind of reduced to two or three songs and like you say it's particularly frustrating for the Wonder Stuff who uh, who had a you know as, as you say had a string of very minor hits and only a couple of large ones and yeah of course we only of course Dizzy got to number one so so I suspect that is what they're remembered for and that was a record they made with, with Vic Reeves that, that wasn't their own track it was a cover. Yes. Well hello ver- everyone. Is their version of it's oh so quiet by Bjork, isn't it? Sorry to interrupt you. No, Do please flow on. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast from the Parish Council. It's episode 459. I'm Terence Stackham, and just like the Premier League, she's very firmly behind closed doors. It's Juliet Harris. Indeed, although this door is just slightly pushed too. It's not. It's not in my room. It's not shut entirely. But yes, I am occasionally circulating in the world. But I, I haven't. I wasn't queuing up at Primark. If I had, I would have obviously expected to see Terence in the queue. But um, but yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm still. I'm still sort of. Uh, I'm. I say I'm still standing. I'm still sitting in elasticated trousers as uh, Elton's hit is locked. Oh, it's updated for lockdown. Hello. Um, Jules, you, you've often mentioned and, and seem to look back with real longing on a day many, many months ago when we ran a quiz when you had to identify five Beatles tunes played through on <laughs> panpipes. Yes, I remember that was that was the the hardest slash most entertaining round, I think. I thought you might like to relive the glory of that moment. Oh, that's nice. Thank you. As I now ask you, the Juliet, and you, the listener, to spot five new to the quiz Beatles tracks in a quiz I've named Beatles Panpipe Horror 2. (laughs) This time it's personal. Yes. Listeners, if you have, as I do, an overwhelming love of the Beatles, you may want to cover your ears for a full minute. Um, Jules says five Beatles tracks on the old pan pipes. All I want to know is, what are they?
Well, that was torturous for me, and I compiled the thing. <laughs> I found that quite relaxing, actually. It was quite. Uh, I, there's been ages since I felt that chilled out. Thank you, Terence. That was a. Uh, that was pleasant in a very twisted way. <laughs> um, you, of course, five bonus points for get, spotting the band. Yeah, um, I was, uh, I've always guaranteed five out of ten on this, which is it's rather, in which case you're going to have to set the bar quite high, I think. For I think you better get uh, nine out of ten. Yeah, for fair this. enough. I think that's okay. Um, so, so the first one, the band is the Fabulous Beatles. Oh yes, uh, it is. Well, it is, that's a good start. Yes. Yes, it is, as they did indeed sing. Um, and uh, the in that particular tune, that that beautiful moving rendition of <laughs> Strawberry Fields Forever. The original Strawberry Fields in Liverpool, still owned by the Salvation Army, mm-hmm. and only closed as a children's home as recently as 2005, because mm-hmm. John Lennon used to climb over the wall. Um, and go and um, play in there as a, a little boy when it was a children's home. You used to play with the children there. It's only 15 years ago that it stopped being a children's home. Um, number two. Uh, again, I think that's by a little known act called The Beatles. The Beatles, and, that's the um, point straight away. Very good. Well identified. And uh, Penny Lane. Penny Lane, currently in the news, as it's mm. thought to be named after James Penny, uh, a Liverpudlian slave trader. So they've, they've decided to keep the name, I think, for now. They should uh, just say they've named it after the Beatles song and get round it that way. I think that might be the way that they're going, I think. So, um, so yeah, maybe that's, that's, that seems a good idea. But anyway, yes, that's right. Uh, number three. My favourite of all these renditions for the particularly widdly wee guitar that appears sort of halfway through. I, it, it's uh, it's you know the only difference between that and the original tune is pan pipes. Every uh, the, the arrangement's the same. That is uh, the Beatles and something. It is the Beatles, and it was something. Patty Boyd thought George had written it for her, but he told music journalists uh, later that it was uh, about Krishna, which may be, of course, why um, why she, she why ended she... up. <laughs> With Eric Clapton, yes, yeah. indeed. And, uh, and, you know, maybe that's a question. What song would you rather have written for you, something or Layla? Yes, indeed. <laughs> that's, yes. that's the joys. Which one are you bumping for? Number four. Mm. So I had a sip of coffee because I thought you'd speak then and you didn't. Apologies. Um, the Beatles, <laughs> and uh, this is a very professional enterprise, and uh, the earliest of all these songs, She Loves You. I thought that was the worst one, the perky nature of it on the pampipe. Do 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 do. Oh god. It's uh yeah, it's it's no she leave dick, did it? Is it really? No, no, it's not. I'm not I'm, yeah, it's not quite the same as that reworking. Unusual for the Beatles, um, to that date, the narrative in all their songs um was always, you know, I I f- from me to you. It was always the first person. I want to hold your hand. Love me, do. And this was about a third party. You know, she she uh, and you. And I I think either Brian Epstein or George Martin suggested that they write something that was you know because everything up to that point had all been about you know I love you, you love me sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. This is about a, a third party in the narrative recorded on two track tape. Absolutely. It's it's a glorious song, I think. And it's actually quite, um, uh, you know, the fact that they're uh, that, that they say apologize to her is, is quite it's quite forward thinking for, for male advice songs of that time, I think, particularly as it sounds like it's aimed at another man. It's yes, quite it's, it's weirdly progressive in its own odd way. And finally, number five in our panpipe uh, celebration. 
Indeed, yes, a tribute to the wonder that is Pan Pipes. Um, I uh, th- that is the Beatles again. It's the Beatles again. That's 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 giving you nine out of ten. You can't lose. Absolutely, and that uh, again, a- another tear-jerking rendition of a classic, "The Long and Winding Road," ruined by Phil Spector, of course, uh, initially. Oh, by the sound of those panpipes, I mean, <laughs> yeah, the actual, as you say, the actual song, the root of the song itself is a lovely, simple song. Mm. And if it is played simply, I know that this is probably going to, people are going to start shouting at me. I'm not saying this version is better than the Beatles. I'm just saying it's good and I enjoyed it. I was made to watch as a sort of sulky teenager. I wasn't a particularly sulky teenager, but I was sulky about this. With good reason, I feel. My parents made me watch that Golden Jubilee pop concert that they had in 2002. I think it might have been at Buckingham Palace and it, 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 most of it was Oh, dre- where Madness played on the roof, is that the yes, one? Yes, yeah, well Brian May And Brian it. May doing his yeah, fire, and, fireplace and guitar thing, yeah, yes and, beginning, and, and uh, yeah, so, so it was that. Um, one of my biggest takeaway moments from it obviously me and my pals were all very excited about Ozzy Osbourne who, of course the Osbournes had started being big at that time and he came on and did Paranoid and it was quite, he appeared to be melting but it was quite good and the other thing that I, that I, that I remembered as being so good in it was I can't believe I'm saying this, uh, the cause did a version of The Long and Winding Road that was quite simple and quite stripped back and it was really nice and it actually made me think, well, maybe this song isn't a gloopy mess after all, maybe maybe it was just badly produced because the, the root song itself is really lovely, I think. And unusually, John Lon- John Lennon plays uh, bass on it, six-string bass on... Which uh, is, is unexpected, isn't it, frankly? Well, partly the bass playing and partly the basses really need six strings. I, I'm always disconcerted. If, if your bass has got six strings... Why not play the guitar? I mean, I just, I just find it a little bit. It's sort of, I've, I've had it's. I don't know if pretentious is the right word, but I find it a little bit affected. On PJ Harvey's debut single, Dress, um, I think it's Jeremy Hogg. Somebody is 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 listed as playing five string fretless bass on it, and you do think, God, it's like this is like Marks and Spencer's doing bass guitar. Stop fiddling around with loads yeah. of adjectives and just, you know, just make it the bass guitar. Now, George, your ordeal isn't quite over yet because I've got three bonus Beatles questions Ooh, nice. okay. in a quick fire round entitled Three Bonus Beatles Questions. Oh, where do you get these ideas? <laughs> You're such an innovator. Now, the first one is multiple choice um, to make it so much easier for you. Uh, simple question, Jules. Of the Beatles, who was the oldest Beatle? Oh, gosh, I yeah. think. I think it was Ringo. It was Ringo. You had a choice of four, um, and Ringo was 7th of July 1940, so in a couple of weeks after we record this, he'll be 80 years old. Um, you've, you've, you've scored there, but just for the record, who's second oldest? Um, possibly Lennon. Yes, correct. Then, Let's see if then, we can go all the way. And then, then I think it's McCartney. Yes! And George Harrison is George the youngest. George Harrison, I'm George yeah birthday is the same day as my dad ah ringo 7th of july 40 john 9th of october 40 paul 18th of june 1942 and the 25th of february 1940 uh three three my word you've just you you've just 100% all the way along and he's exactly two years younger than my dad well which is just crazy, isn't it? Your dad could have been in the Beatles. Question number two. <laughs> they'd, have been a, they'd have been a different band, but yeah, yeah, of course. Question number two. In 1967, 
Um, Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane, double A side. Yeah. This, this this single was the, their first single since Love Me Do to fail to reach number one in the UK. Which single kept Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane at number oh, two? Oh, gosh, I should know this. Um, and and you're not offering me multiple choice on this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, don't get me wrong. I always love to hear from you musically, but that is not really assisting me. Please right. release me. Oh, let me go. Oh, please release me by Engelbert Hunkerdink. Hunkerdink. A huge. I did have a huge clue in that, but but yeah, it's uh well, that is a that is a heck of a song. It's not quite uh, Joe Dolce and Should Happy Your Face in Vienna, but it's not far off, is it? It absolutely infuriated me as an 11-year-old at the time mm. that my Beatles, you know, were being kept away uh, by Engelbert. Also, in the top 20 in March 1967, which is when we're talking about, um, Nancy Sinatra, Sugartown, Marvin oh, Gaye, Kim Weston, yeah. It Takes Two, Cat right. Stevens, Matthew and Son, Holly's on a Carousel, Monkeys, I'm a Believer. Not a bad month. That's not at all, is it? If that's a, they're all in that month. That is really. I love Sugartown by Nancy Sinatra. Mm. It's so great. Like you say, it's a. That's not a bad quality for that month, is it? Finally, Jules. Mm. Which is the only Beatles album where all of the songs are written by Lennon and McCartney? No covers. No George. All the songs are written by Lennon and McCartney. If oh. you need it, I'll give you. I'll give you multiple choice if you need it. Okay, I'd like multiple choice, please. Okay, I'm going to give you a choice of four. Was it was it help? Was it Beatles for sale? Was it Hard Day's Night or Revolver? Um, I think. Um, I'm just sort of you know rattling through. I'm going to go for Revolver. It was Hard Day's Night. Oh, that's interesting. Very well. Mm, You did very well. it's really, really interesting. And also perhaps particularly money spinning for them because of the film, I would think. Yes. Uh, well, of, of, of course, uh, the film rights. And then also, of course, uh, people buying the album off the album back. all around the world. And it was released as an EP and, you know, the singles, of course. So, yeah. So um, a, a bit of a money spinner for the Lennon and McCartney yes, songwriting. Indeed. And apologies if I've told this story before on the podcast, but I think it bears repeating. One of the most macabre, not macabre, one of the most odd, unsettling coincidences in my life revolves around a hard day's night by the Beatles, the album. I think the listeners that are familiar with it or with the film poster will remember that the the, the, the front cover is sort of, I think it's 16, isn't it? Different yeah, shots. Yeah, four by the, four, yeah. Yeah, and uh, different shots of the Beatles in different directions. And it's a dark blue, the album cover, sort of the framing of it with the Beatles on it. Um, different versions in different countries are slightly different. Yes. And okay. the Russian version, which has, the, has the, 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 the actual front cover and the back, the sleeve is written in Russian. The record is in English, but but everything is written in Russian and is a light blue and looks very different. And I remember I went through a phase of trying to find a copy on eBay. Would have been about ten years ago now. And I was I was you know trying to find it and I never found one that was affordable. I sort of gave up and didn't think any more about it. And I think it was last summer. I was in the back of a car with my friends that run a record shop and I was explaining to them. We were talking about the Beatles and I was explaining how you know that was the one that got away from me. And it was you know it was really unusual and you know i still thought of it and i was explaining how it was a different color light blue and all that sort of thing and you know it was the russian version and so it was quite unusual and three days later 
I was sat in their shop talking to them and a man came in and said to my friend Tim behind the counter, I've brought some of those records in for you to have a look at. And I remember Tim going very quiet and he called my name. And when I looked up, he held up a record and it was the Russian version of A Hard Day's Night in light blue. I hadn't thought of it for about eight years. And someone walked in three days later. Extraordinary. Which I then bought, um, which is, yeah. So every time I see that, I just I couldn't quite believe that had happened and I said afterwards because we were trying to unpick sort of boggling at how it happened and I said are you sure that you hadn't mentioned in the conversation <laughs> that you had someone that was coming in with some records and that was one of them and he said no no I had no idea that was in that bag really spooky twist of Very fate indeed yeah coming next androgyny in pop expressing gender in pop music that's right after basement jacks
I think lots of us could do with a bit of cheer at the moment, maybe dancing things out. And I find that irrepressible, to use the phrase. Uh, there have been different versions of it, different sort of single versions, album mixes, that sort of thing. And it gets used, again, speaking of money spinners, I bet Basement Jacks have, have earned a ton of money off of that. Because every time TV, TV sort of people were using music on, not, not necessarily in things, but sort of for adverts, for TV promotions. So when they're promoting programs, programs on on the channel um it just seems to be tv kind of music user producers kind of you know go to oh let's show people having a good time that seems to be the sort of the the people moving about having a nice time track at the moment i remember a friend of mine that worked in for a production company said so was explaining to me once which bands were good to get clearance for and which weren't and it would seem that having made you know having had their red letter day with song two blur songs are now almost impossible to get clearance <laughs> for whereas whereas this seems to be sort of available for most things really so i really love that basement jacks and do your thing it's one of five singles from the album Rooty, and all five reached the uk top 40 so they... that album at the time it was brilliant it was, they're similar to the Wonder Stuff in a way that for 10 years, 10 years later, really, the Wonder Stuff sort of mid 80s to mid 90s. And then Basement Jacks, I don't know, 97 ish to 2006 ish, they just couldn't stop creating hits. Everything they did, you know, made the top 40 in the album sold. The albums still sell, but I don't think they, they trouble the um, singles charts so much now. Um, any listener or any Juliet paying um, attention will have. Mm-hmm would have noticed we were just talking about the Beatles a few minutes ago. Uh, you and know, it's so unusual for us. They never come up on these parts. Indeed. I've just finished uh, reading Craig Brown's lovely little collection of anecdotes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called One, Two, Three, Four, The Beatles in Time. It's a little luscious series of vignettes. Uh, hard to imagine anyone other than Mark Lewison bringing anything fresh to the Beatles' uh, mm-hmm. table. But uh, Craig Brown scores highly with this. Anyway, the book reminded me of how many people, not just the oldsters, and this seems quite absurd in retrospect, how many people in 1963 commented on the Beatles on what we would now call gender issues? Um, Hmm. The travel writer Jan Morris, then only in her 30s, said in 1963, children love the Beatles because they don't know whether they're boys or girls. Which interesting. It was a reasonably common view at the time, but how absurd to look back now and think how people commented in 1963 on their long hair when now those hairstyles would be considered, you know, quite conservative. Yes, true. So almost 60 years on from the Beatles and Are They Boys or Are They Girls, uh, gender issues still seem to fascinate followers of pop and pop culture, Jules. Yes, I agree. And there's a, a book that's come out that is due to come out, I think, by Sasha Geffen um, called Glitter Up the Dark, How Pop Music Broke the Binary, which looks really interesting. And there's a there's a, a quote at the beginning that says music and gender nonconformity have gone hand in hand since long before pop music emerged as a product, which I think I, I do agree with. But I'm just trying to think about why, why there is seemingly so much of, of, of this kind of creativity um, and re- Rejection of of traditional gender roles and gender presentations. I think um, people like Iggy. I mean, there are so many of them. She she traces a sort of a line from you know early twentieth century queer blues women through to Iggy Pop and Patti Smith, Missy Elliott, Frank Ocean, and it, it feels to me like 
there's something particularly the sort of traditional pop market and i'm thinking back to the days of smash hits and things like that pop music it became successful i think because it was an alternative to what was at the time the very kind of you know the light program a very sort of traditional mainstream that was not experimental at all and was really rigid in in what its rules were and how it looked and there's pop music has always had something of the exotic about it i think it's always been an unusual alternative so it therefore doesn't surprise me that artists within it you know want to play mm. with gender with, with gender presentation or indeed that it, that it is a medium that attracts people that want to do that anyway i i feel i've felt this for a long time i think i've picked christine and the queen's tracks before for the podcast and yes. uh christine also known as chris um uh, she I always feel she's she's sort of you know different in the way that she kind of plays with gender and and I always be, I often bemoan the lack of smash hits in our lives but particularly in Christine and the Queen's era because I do feel that she would be on their front cover every week if smash hits was still going because she's a proper pop star of the old school in the sense that she she is doing something like David Bowie like Mark Bowen she's she's doing something glamorous and a bit more interesting in the way that she that she sort of represents gender i think it's i think it's really um and it says more about you know the freedom to kind of to play around with identity is um there's another quote from the from from the writer that says the book is ultimately about me as a listener um what has rung true to me and whose voices have awakened my own gender stuff and you know and 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 the author talks about how music can point to larger truths about freedom survival and i I do like the idea that that particularly when david bowie sort of experimented with those sort of things and you know shockingly at the time putting his arm around mick ronson on top Mm. of the pops i can't believe how much of a scandal that cause when i look at it from 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 this end of history but um but the i you know there's there is a freedom i think in it and i like the idea that pop music is about being free rather than necessarily being constrained or then of course it develops its own standards and its own ecosystems which then obviously then limit uh, you know the 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 way in which you can subvert the system but i i do like the idea i think there is something to be said in the connection between playing around with different gender and and and, and androgyny sort of ideas ideas and and pop music being a sort of an alternative really and it's 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 difficult to think of things that way now that pop music has become such a huge industry but no i'm looking forward to reading this book it looks very interesting and and charting um from the 60s through to the 80s i mean at the time in the 1980s the distance Mm -hmm. between the beatles and boy george it felt like a lifetime but it was barely more than a decade from uh you know the 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 ending of the beatles to um culture club and boy george coming into prominence but not much had changed um when do you really want to hurt me burst into the charts and top Mm -hmm. of the pops once again we we had the ill-informed what sort of sniggers really or you know is that a boy or a girl and I always remembered this, a boy George appearing on the Noel Edmonds uh, TV show and Edmonds asked him a whole series of impertinent questions, mm-hmm. you know, apropos of nothing. And I remember him saying to uh, to boy George, um, asking him if he was a great fan of Liberace with, you know, all that implied. And the newspapers the next day were all back to the, is it a boy or a girl? And the thing, the strange thing about this is, and this is... Um, I think the the point with with sort of that era and the glam rock era that came before it, because if you had, um, say, Brian Ferry wearing eyeliner or the sweet on top of the pops also wearing mascara and makeup, 
George, very similarly, very comfortable with masculinity. That there was, there really was no gender issue. He he just preferred to have boyfriends over girlfriends, and that's yeah. that really. And with you know Brian Ferry wearing makeup and and the sweet and so on, they 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 looked like in the most stereotypical way, they still looked like blokes. You know, it wasn't always that a boy or a, a, a girl. Um, but I did. I uh, one sort of very brief anecdote i did work on a video shoot with culture club once in the 1980s uh, ridiculously i'm i'm um, credited as assistant director i was actually a, <laughs> i was a gopher i was just a young boy i was just a, someone who carried and fetched things but one big lesson i learned he may be a national treasure now but in the 1980s boy george, boy george he was hard work yes very I, very hard work actually i can imagine that he he would be Yes, having met some people around that world, yes, I can mm. I can imagine that that he, you know, I, I I've seen him on things recently. He seems very sweet, but I can imagine that yes, that 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 wasn't that wasn't ideal. Really. So just one one final point to ask you about, George. It's it's perhaps difficult for commentators though to know whether to focus on gender in pop music and the performing performing arts in general. Some artists, boy George, we just mentioned Prince, seem to consider it part of their performance. Mm. Um, Yet to others, it may be a very personal issue, which isn't for public consideration. Maybe, yes, I do. I do see that point, and I mean, it's there's a there's some interesting comments that it's funny you should say there's some interesting comments. Um, so so this idea in, in this interview, there's 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 this idea. The question is, when reading the chapter about the Beatles and how their androgyny appealed to female fans, I couldn't help but think about more modern day artists like Harry Styles who are continuing that tradition. However, we're seeing a lot more present day fans demand that artists come out or else they're queer baiting. What do you make of that discourse? Um, but but the, the 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 author of this book, Sasha Geffen, that's right says in response to that question I totally get um, uh, that a young person would want to share an identity mark with one of their heroes but at the same time I think if it's already there you don't necessarily need to label it to enjoy it and she goes on to speak about someone who at the time was seen as very kind of you know sort of edgy but now of course is unfortunately rather less loved she says I think about Morrissey who is a garbage human but played with queerness his whole career and has steadfastly recorded refused to call himself uh, bisexual even though it's all there in the music I still have historically gotten a lot out of the Smiths for the queerness embedded in it and I get a lot out of Harry Styles and his great stage get-ups I personally don't need him to say what his sexuality is I think it also kind of plays into this false need for visibility like being seen so well that we are easy to to digest by corporatism and I think there is something in that really I think as as an LGBT person the constant monetization of the it seems that we just feel like a target market sometimes to have stuff sold to us i think there's a lot to be said for that idea that the themes are there but but they don't i i don't necessarily see people as playing at it i think people it does happen sometimes there is some cynicism in presentation but equally i do quite like the idea that it's not always very obvious but the clues are there if you are young and you want to read into it Mm, okay coming right up Behind closed doors, how music, the arts and sport are coping. That's next after Todd Rungren.
Of course, a terrific uh, slice of perfect pop from the uh, from the maestro. But what makes this track and indeed the album from which it comes so outstanding is that it was all part of another one of um, Todd's fiendish experiments. Mm-hmm. Because every single sound on that track and the album w- was created by Todd Rundgren's voice only. There's no yeah. instruments there at all. Every sound is Todd's voice. So he created the sounds of all the instruments, uh, keyboards, drums, That's synths, guitars, bass, all by his voice. So. You know, that's incredible. And, and I really admire kind of Acker acapella sort of singing Bjork did a similar thing on the album Medulla which was released in August 2004 and there's a lovely track on that that I think I've picked previously called The Triumph of a Heart which has loads of beatboxers on it and I think I think to be that innovative is is incredible I mean I, I it's funny there are a few bands that I've taken from lockdown that I wasn't really familiar with beforehand and I have to say your Todd Rundgren is one of them <laughs> everything I've heard of him I've really liked um, he he actually is in that sort of same group with your PJ Harvey, really. Mm-hmm. In that, um, it's, it's frustrating if you you know you through life have wanted him to have success, but um, he doesn't care about it. He, he'll he'll get as near as damn it as he ever will do to having a hit single. It's played mm-hmm. all over the radio, and you think, oh great, now come on, Todd, follow that, follow this up with a real cracker, and he'll put out an experimental album of heavy rock music played backwards or something it's, you know it's it, hilarious, isn't it they get yeah. too close to the mainstream and then they think oh i've got to go yeah absolutely from 1985 and it's funny you mentioned this word earlier because the album is called acapella yeah. um it was todd rungren and something to fall back on indeed at the time we're recording this during the the covid19 business uh, in England, some professional sports are returning. Uh, other countries as well. America, golf is is already back. So we've had golf, horse racing and football all back uh, being played behind closed doors. Now, golf was going to be one of the easiest non-contact, mm. um, not hard to maintain social distancing. Um, also, it was Royal Ascot this week, uh, horse racing, again, with no public present. And mm. although the atmosphere was dampened, we lost nothing by not having leering, sweaty, boozy blokes coming <laughs> up to heckle the presenters around the course. And the Premier League also returned this week with no crowds in the stadium. And again, the lack of atmosphere was balanced by not enduring close-ups of twisted faces of hatred in the crowd yes. when an opposing player came over to take a corner. You know, probably Raheem Sterling, but he felt he'd been born again. In summary, did I miss the the, the crowds? I have to say, not one bit. Mm-hmm. Music, though, has taken a different route with gigs large and small cancelled uh, rather than take place behind closed doors from pub gigs to Glastonbury, all written off. So, Jules, some musicians are having to be creative to get live music to their fans. Yes, absolutely. And, and perhaps crucially to get an income still as well, because because we have we have talked about the fact that although a handful of artists make a lot of money um having said that it's it's much of money in the music industry is now made on touring if you see what i mean so it's so it's it's quite um it's it's quite a difficult time i think and and also it's i thought it was very um telling that the one of the biggest artists in the entire world who always seemed to be on tour or the the only band to have headlined glastonbury four times coldplay mm. um 
said, I've never done this before, so if I'm a bit nervous, I apologise, said Cole plays Chris Martin, sitting by a piano, scratching his head. He was looking at all the comments down the screen. He said, amazing day. I can't remember that one, which I think is mm. so entertaining. And this was just before lockdown. Um, so it's there are lots of things that are proposed, sort of, you know, postponed and cancelled. I thought this was very... Um, so it's very, very sort of moving, actually. I think well, I, I've chosen a track by Phoebe Bridges before on this programme, and I really like her. I think she's a really interesting young singer. And she was asked how she felt when she realised her summer gigs wouldn't be going ahead. And she said, sad, very, very sad. I get 80% of my self-worth from interacting with tons of people on tour every night. I think that's a very open and ab- admirably open sort of way of addressing how lots of performers are driven by insecurity more than anything else, I think. And Rufus Wainwright says, uh, I miss the travel and just being in my fans' world. And I particularly enjoy this quote by American indie rocker Lucy. I think it's pronounced Dacus or Dacus. She was planning on taking it easy this year, which still meant doing like five <laughs> tours, she says. So, and so she says, I... She says it's very affirming and powerful to stand in a room with friends and strangers and look in the same direction, sharing an experience, find joy. I miss being an excuse for people to come together. I think that's really lovely. Um, and I, yeah, and it's interesting that, that it'll be uh, interesting to see how sport eventually plays itself out, if you pardon the pun. In mm-hmm. that, like you say, it is good not to be confronted with some of the sort of hate that we see mm-hmm. amongst sports fans and maybe that stems from the fact that sport is inherently based on competition whereas live music is perhaps more based on the principles of cooperation if you're involving a sport with people particularly football with teams in competition against each other and for many sports fans being a fan of their football club is and a follower and a supporter is is a sort of an ident is a point of identity more than anything else it goes beyond just being a, 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 a recreational pursuit and becomes part of who you are you say well, I'm a Queen's Park Rangers fan I'm a Chelsea supporter that sort of thing um so so therefore when you've got two of those teams in competition with each other it means that emotions are very sort of high and this is why we 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 perhaps get you know some of their behavior might come across as a bit more unpleasant than you know necessarily music fans um but having said that there are moments of great joy in sport when you know when when something happens somebody achieves something amazing a team wins that sort of thing and it is rather sad that we can't all be together to communally share in those moments and and so so it'd be interesting to sort of see what happens but I I certainly think that the lack of sort of community communal sort of celebration together is is I can see why artists are missing that I can see why Raheem Sterling might not necessarily miss people shouting at him but it's very interesting that they are piping in crowd noise aren't they for the players to play along so even though you might not always necessarily enjoy the reaction of fans it is a part of what I say is it was and hopefully will be once again a part of sport and a part of our lives isn't it really I very much enjoyed you can have you sent a cardboard cutout of yourself in <laughs> the stadium yet you I love the fact you can you can pay to have yourself represented and firstly someone sent one of Dominic Cummings in somewhere which I thought was very entertaining that he popped up at a um, at this height of the scandal he popped up in a football stadium in Germany I think or in or in America or somewhere like that which I thought was very funny also they don't they're not 
doing them to scale. So there was a club somewhere that put up all these things. People's pets that they'd sent in <laughs> to be in the crowd were the same size as people. So the world's largest cat appeared to be watching <laughs> Oxford or whoever it was play a football match. So, so I mean, clearly, because clubs are looking to recreate their atmosphere, like it, like the reaction of clubs or not, you you must you must find, you know it must be weird as a player to not have that energy anymore. You must get a lot of as much as you know almost as much as as um as as musicians do. You probably and even the negative energy. You're probably if you've got you know ten thousand people shouting at you that you're a you know you're a word that isn't suitable for use on this podcast. Um, that might be a motivating factor to stick a stick a goal in the net to shut them up. So it will be interesting to see how the games play out. But you know it's 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 as, as everyone says all the time at the moment. It's a different world, and this I don't want to call it the new normal because I don't want to give up hope that we'll ever get any of these things back. But but you know this kind of temporary holding pattern that we're having to adopt whilst things can be sorted out. Um, you know I. I, I can see why musicians miss fans and I suspect that sports players probably do as well. I wonder what you make of this proposal that was suggested this week. I, I think the future for music and theatre is the hardest to predict. Um, yeah, if COVID it. returns big time and the signs from America where lockdown has been almost totally lifted, they're not encouraging, uh, no. to say the least. Or if a vaccine or a cure can't be found in the near future. There was a suggestion this week, um, uh, again from America, we may have to enter... A sort of bizarre world of ongoing online and TV performances with no crowd. But it's thought that um, several tech companies are working on a way to place us, um, the audience, although individually at home, to Mm. place us virtually through our phones or any camera devices individually into an empty auditorium where we can react and create the live atmosphere as if we're all in there together i mean it's weird and not very satisfying but a halfway solution perhaps I think it's it's probably the best that anyone can come up with at the moment. I think that the, the phrase you're used to the phrase halfway solution really hits the nail on the head. It's not what anybody really wants, but if it stops if it stops live venues from going under, musicians from going under, then 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 let's do it. If if there's any way of trying to to maintain the creative industries, then let's try and do it. Well, as we've been saying, these are peculiar times and we're very grateful that you're coming along for the parish council ride. So thank you for being here. Do feel free to send in cardboard cutouts of yourself (laughs) to a PO box address that we will establish so that we can feel you're all here with us. Or your six foot uh, Yeah, do do send a picture of your giant give your giant seven foot hamster for us to enjoy please now before we hear about your radio shows let's let's check some reviews um <laughs> this is and, the best bit of the show <laughs> an all-time disaster a spa a star-spangled calamity which will leave jaws littered across floors not of course Thank goodness, not, of course, a review of Juliet. That's Tim Roby in the Daily Telegraph commenting on last year's Cats movie. Oh, I I still haven't seen it. I've heard very mixed reviews of it, to say the least, frankly. So where, Jules, may we hear your shows that are the very opposite 
of a calamity. That's too kind. Thank you. Um, well, there was a calamity last week and that we had a tech fail, but but we, we'll, we'll move on from that. So I'll be on air this evening from 5 to 7 p.m. on. Uh, so we're recording this on Saturday, the 20th of June. You can hear me from 5 to 7 p.m. on um, on my Mixler channel. If you go onto the Mixler site, which is mixlr.com and check uh, search my name, then you'll find my channel. If you want to subscribe to my channel, then you get email notifications whenever I go live. Um, so if you don't find me on, you know, on and subscribing on, is free, yeah. of course, George. It is, yeah. Sorry, yes, thank you. Yes, subscribing is free. You don't have to give me any money. You just, you know, you just listen in. That's fine. Um, and then on Sunday evening from seven till nine p.m., I do something called smooth sailing, which is uh, yacht rock, easy listening, classic pop, mor that sort of thing. It's basically music that no one would usually admit to liking, but uh, people seem to enjoy the comforts of it during lockdown. So I'll be doing that as well. And a lovely track from Little Boots to play us out. Yeah, and it's interesting that I mentioned the festival that I saw the Wonder Stuff at earlier on. Um, I saw Little Boots at this festival as well, possibly on the same day, actually, on the Saturday afternoon. And it was at the time that she was she did very well in the BBC, their Sound Of polls, which unfortunately seems to act a bit like the Mercury Music Prize in that <laughs> when I've known people win it, they're then never heard from again. But um, but she um, she did quite well in that, as did Little Boots, not Little Boots, um, the other one LaRue was sort of um was 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 you know very prominent in that um yes Little Boots won the BBC Sound of 2009 poll um she got a Critics Choice nomination at the Brits um she so this is from her debut album which is called Hands it's such an amazing record I think I really do feel that she she's still doing things that are mostly self-funded I think um but this is really glorious. It's a wonderful sort of pop record with lots of pop sensibilities on it. And I saw her at this festival. She so she was sort of being hyped as she won this poll. And mm. and and I remember being with this with this chap when we we sort of watched her in separate places and then talked about it afterwards. And she came on and she had two blokes in the band that she put in capes. And she she had a sort of a, a thing called a tenorion, which was a very expensive at the time Japanese synthesizer that she was sort of doing things with. And she was really good. And she just seemed to know how to be a pop star. The music was kind of, you know, sort of electronic, but with very, very great tunes. And she moved really well. And I remember afterwards, me and this chap talking, I was saying, well, surely she's going to be huge, isn't he? I remember him saying, oh, yeah, she's really good, isn't she? She's actually a pop star. And I do think that this album is just so neglected it's a treat from start to finish and if you look beneath it's bit sort of uplifting there's a lovely duet with Phil Oakey on it as well um it's 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 grand and I, I'm gonna pick this it came up in my Apple sort of recommendations this week it was lovely to hear it again I think it's just a lovely sweet melody really I just I, I think it's a lovely record this is Little Boots and Tune Into My Heart Communication is Yeah.
Listening to a Parish Council production.